G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Coming up today on The Story... We just had a a longing with all of our friends for something more. We were looking for something deeper and and a deeper connection. And I think that's what God used by the Holy Spirit to draw us. And, of course, the prayers of of the ladies who, uh, years later, uh, one of them who had been one of our early mentors said to me, you know, when we were praying, Jasmine, we didn't expect that God would send people like you. (laughs) The Story. G'day, I'm Jimmy Colfax. Welcome to The Story. Well, even though Jasma O'Hara came from a family with a strong Christian heritage, she left the church disillusioned as a teenager. Then, as an idealistic young adult, Jasma joined a hippie commune on the Sunshine Coast, along with her husband in the 1970s. She always had a desire to make the world a better place, and now that she and her husband are both Christians, their ministry is making a huge difference in people's lives all over the world. We'll hear Jesma's incredible story today as she has a chat with Eric Scatterbo. Welcome to the program. It's really great to be with you, Eric. Thanks for having me. Glad to have you with us. And let's go back to your childhood. You have a strong Christian heritage. Yes, well, I, I think going back, uh, and I, I was talking earlier with someone about the fact that we have this spiritual DNA, and that mm. uh, that ancestors that we've never met, including my grand, my mother's father, who was a lay preacher, traveling around uh, preaching in the mining towns of Queensland in the the late nineteenth century, and in my husband's case, uh, William Carey, uh, the father of modern missions oh, in, wow. in Bengal in India, and so I think that the the collective prayers of of our ancestors, it forms part of who we are, even when we don't realize it, Eric. And that was certainly, I believe, that's the case for me. Also, your mother's ancestors were among the first group of missionaries? Yes, my mother's ancestors went with, they were the first missionaries with Samuel Marsden into the North Island of New Zealand and they held the first service there, I think it was in 1814 on Christmas Day and established a mission there. So so once again, you sense God's hand on, on God cares about families mm-hmm. and, and even when uh, some of our family members aren't walking with him, I believe that, that God has his hand on our lives, drawing us together. And certainly I believe that John and I, came, my husband, came together as unbelievers, but um, God had a plan and purpose for us and, and our life until we became believers was certainly an apprenticeship uh, for what he had in mind now as we're, we're getting much older. Mm-hmm. Now let's go back to your childhood. So as you mentioned, you had such a strong Christian heritage and grew up in a Christian family, but became disillusioned eventually. What happened? Well, I think in those days uh, there was probably this wrestling with faith in the denominational churches and having a minister who uh, believed that the Bible and taught us that the Bible was just a collection of, of tribal folk stories probably ate away at my faith. I have a couple of very strong memories as a child and one of them was uh, I was the youngest of six children. My father died suddenly when I was 10 and uh, and my mother very courageously raised me. I was a, a most 
most unexpected late in life child. Mm. I'm not sure she ever recovered mm. uh, from the shock of that. But I remember walking down the street, having just thrown a bit of a tantrum. I, I must have been quite small. And the thought crossed my mind, I'd hate to have to meet God now if I hadn't got control of my temper. <laughs> and that was <laughs> one, perhaps one of my first ideas about what life was all about. But our family had an old King James Bible. It was pretty ratty. So I remember, and I would have been quite small, not uh, old enough to read an adult Bible. And in it were lots of sepia-coloured pictures of the Holy Land, uh, probably taken about the end of the 19th century. And, and I just can remember so clearly uh, having such a strong connection with the land and the people. I didn't know any Jewish people, mm. didn't know. Uh, well, there was no modern state of Israel at that point in time, but just feeling a real connection. And even when I left the church at probably about 16, and I, I after school I went to Sydney to work in advertising, I always took that Bible with me. And, and when John and I had met and, and married and, and had our first child and we were living in Starlight Valley Alternative Community at the back of the Sunshine Coast, there were a group of, of ladies, older ladies in, in a church in a small village on the coast praying for revival. And, and I guess their idea of revival was, uh, you know, nice people in suits and ties and polished shoes. Uh, but God had a different idea and he began to move amongst what I'd call the searching young people who were living in the alternative communities, probably disillusioned mm. with a consumerist society and, and uh, we, were, we were fairly, uh, I think, critical of society and looking for something more. And, and God used that hunger, I think, to touch our hearts and, and many of our friends came to the Lord. Well, before we get to uh, coming to the Lord, I was going to ask you about what was going on. Why did you join this commune? What was happening inside your heart? We were really searching for more, I, I guess. John had left. He, he's the, where I'm the, the descendant of, of convicts and pioneers of Australia dating back to the, the early 1800s. John is a first generation uh, son of refugees from, uh, he's of, of Indian and Burmese extraction. Okay. And his parents came out after the Second World War. So we, we had a, a privileged upbringing, I believe, strong family roots, both of us, very fortunate there, but we just had a, a longing with all of our friends for something more. We were looking for something deeper and, and a deeper connection, and I think that's what God used by the Holy Spirit to, to draw us, and, uh, and of course, the prayers of, of the ladies who, uh, years later, uh, one of them who had been one of our early mentors said to me, you know, when we were praying, Jessma, we didn't expect that God would send people like you. <laughs> Not with <laughs> the long so hair and uh, the hippie stuff. All of that, yeah, I, I, all of that. Uh, I remember the first time my husband John was asked to lead a Sunday night service and he arrived in his jeans and T-shirt and they were the days of you had to wear a dark suit and a red tie. Oh, wow. And I just remember the look on the minister's face when, when he turned up in his sandals. But they were incredibly gracious and, and they baptised us in creeks and in, uh, and in the ocean near where we lived and really discipled us uh, and laid a tremendous foundation foundation, which I'm still extremely grateful for. But, you know, it was that connection with Israel and the Jewish people that caused me to keep reading books, even when I was not walking with the Lord, reading books about Israel. And then mm. when I started to feel the tug um, of the Holy Spirit when our two-year-old daughter asked me where God was and I realized I didn't have an answer for her. I went out and I bought a modern Bible and I read it from cover to cover. Mm. And in that time, 
That was when I committed my life to the Lord out in Starlight Valley and I think it laid that foundation, probably coming from my mother's father as a Bible teacher, um, a love for the Word of God and and I've been teaching the Bible and writing Bible study books ever since. Now, so you were at this hippie commune reading Mm. your Bible Mm -hmm. and how did you make a connection to this conservative church where these ladies were praying? Well, that that was quite a challenge, and, and uh, I can remember thinking, I really now, I can't just stay here and read the Bible, and, and it was 18 months later when John came to the Lord, um, mm-hmm. and thinking, but I actually have to go and do something, but so really reluctantly, and by that stage, a few of our friends had become believers, and so that was the church that they were connected to. So I took myself and our then second child, our baby son, off to church one Sunday morning, and in one of those God-happenstances, it was a morning when they had an evangelist there, and he made an altar call, and of course I responded, and that was the beginning of of a time when so many young people came to the Lord, and and we had home group meetings in our home, and and, uh, people were getting saved most weeks, Mm. and Our children got used to to just uh, sleeping on mattresses on the floor. We had wall-to-wall kids like sardines, and we just saw God touch lives. It it was just a a time when the Holy Spirit was moving powerfully in our generation. Now, back in the 60s and early 70s, there was a Jesus freak movement among Mm -hmm. hippies and idealistic young people. Was this part of that? Oh, yes, absolutely. And the interesting thing for me as well with my connection with Israel and the Jewish people is that um, a lot of the Messianic pastors who are leading churches in, in Messianic movements in Israel today actually came to the Lord in America at that time as well. So God was really doing something and, and, and preparing us, I think, and particularly I'm speaking of John and I for what we're doing now. Okay, we're going to get to what you're doing now, but let's uh, find out what happened next in your life. So now you're a young Christian, a new Mm -hmm. baby Christian, and you have this strong desire to help people and serve people. Where did that lead you? Well, in in those days, it led to very much a strong church involvement, which was mm-hmm. how it was in the 70s. They kept you busy. So <laughs> you, you, you couldn't escape there. Uh, John became a leader in, in children's church. I led women's ministry as well, took ladies' Bible studies, and uh, we were there at Sunday morning and Sunday night. Uh, that was just the way it was then. I just wanted, another question? Yeah, I just wanted to know, did he eventually lose the sandals and T-shirt, or did he continue? <laughs> no, no, he did cut his hair. Oh, he did. Okay. <laughs> and lose the same, he did, yeah. yeah and, and he's losing his hair uh, more than just cutting it short these days. Oh, well, that's, that's another whole that. thing. Uh, <laughs> but the thing that's beautiful about this story is that they could have said, hey, you guys look different. I mean, you're our long-haired yeah. hippies and all that. We don't want you around here. But yeah. they looked past that. They looked at your yeah. hearts, it sounds like. Yeah, absolutely, and I think, and they made room for us, mm-hmm. and they came out to our houses, our our, uh, our hippie houses, out in the bush uh, to lead Bible studies. Mm. And uh, we didn't get baptized in a font in the church; we got baptized out in nature. And and, mm. and yeah, they really did make room for us. Yeah. And I, I've been really challenged by a book Michael Frost has just written called "Keep Christianity Weird," <laughs> and, and I guess that that's uh, being Michael Frost. Um, it, it's a real challenge to the church to make room for the weird people because that's that's how the church grows when you allow people to be themselves and because ultimately what God wants to do is turn us into the image of Christ and, and, and that looks different for all of us. You're listening to The Story. 
Today, Eric Scadabo is chatting with Jesma O'Hara, who's sharing her incredible life journey on going from a hippie commune on the Sunshine Coast to starting a vibrant ministry that's impacting people's lives all over the world. We'll hear more of Jesma's story when we return. The Story. If this program has highlighted something you'd like prayer for, we'd love to pray for you. Call 1-800-PRAY-FOR-ME. That's 1-800-772-936. It's a free call. Or text 0401 132 Hi, I'm Jimmy Colfax and this is The Story. Today, Eric Scadabo is chatting with Jesma O'Hara, who's sharing her incredible life journey of going from a hippie commune on the Sunshine Coast to starting a vibrant ministry that's impacting people's lives all over the world. Before the break, we heard how Jesma and her husband, John, became Christians. Now, we're going to hear what happened next in their lives as they begin to get involved in their local church. We mm. had five children in eight years, and that was pretty oh, <laughs> much yeah. the same for all of our friends. That'll keep you pretty busy. That did keep us busy, but that turned our thoughts to education. And so our children were part of the beginnings. And, and by, by the early 1980s, that was, again, a time that the Holy Spirit was moving in establishing faith-based schools. Mm-hmm throughout the world. And so we were part of a a movement that started a small school out of our church. We had 35 students in that school at that time. And um, I still chair the board Mm -hmm. since 2002 and have been a founding board member, but we have over 1,200 students now. And it has a strong missions focus and an indigenous campus in the Gulf of Carpentaria. And and again, it was birthed out of that time and and a sense we, again, we we really didn't have any idea what we were doing. (laughs) But God was with us, and and the school is, is a, a school of excellence now, and and touching thousands of lives in the in the coast community. So so that, again, it was a time of innovation. It was a time when you couldn't do that anymore. But it was a time that God took advantage of of things in the education department, so we could begin the school, and that birthed, I guess, a, a passion for the importance of education, which mm-hmm. also feeds into where we are now. Well, let's get to where are you now? I mean, it sounds like your journey, God tugs your heart toward one thing and then toward another thing, and then it just keeps going on and on, and you're touching people all over the world. So what was the next thing that he tugged your heart toward? Well, he, he really tugged my heart, and of course, that was already there from when I was very young with a love for the nation of Israel. Uh-huh. And so our first visit in 1987, we were fortunate to have a pastor and his wife who had a real love for the land and the people and were leading study tours. And uh, in 1987, our children were our first study tour to Israel. (laughs) And we traveled around the country for about six weeks. And again, I had no idea that here we are 30 odd years later, 32 years later, um, we've led tours for introducing hundreds of people to the land of Israel. and, And so the next thing that God did, of course, was give me the opportunity to study and to begin to write study material on the Hebrew roots of Christianity. And I, I guess I'm a lifelong learner. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm writing a thesis at the moment, and I'm 67, so I haven't stopped being a stu- well, student ever. You. But that was really significant, um, that love for Israel. And in a sense, that was what connected us with the next part of the journey, which was well, um, well, hold was on. Before you get to that next part, I just wanted to ask you, when you finally did arrive in Israel, 
Did it look anything like the pictures that you had in your old family Bible growing up? <laughs> <laughs> no, not at all. It's uh, no? Israel's such a, a vibrant modern nation, oh, but yeah. underneath it, uh, you, you've got. I think what it did for me is it just um, made the Bible come alive, mm-hmm. and it gave me such a passion for helping it come alive in the lives of other people. So not only are we involved with practical works in Israel, but it, it's a great joy for me to see all the aha moments when mm. you take groups to the land and, and you just see them understanding how geography and politics of the time and language, how everything came together to build the stories in the Bible. And, and I think nobody is ever the same if they've really had a disciples tour to Israel. Mm-hmm. And then that led you to what? Well, we were, at that stage, we were very much involved with a couple of, supporting a couple of groups in Israel, uh, caring for needy children, but we'd also extended ourselves. I'd have to say that one of the scriptures that has really meant a lot to my husband, John, and I for many years is from Isaiah 54, where it encourages us to enlarge the place of our tent and extend Mm. the curtains of our dwelling, not to hold back, but to lengthen our cords and strengthen our stakes because we need to spread out to the right and the left. So, um, we took a, a small group of, of friends to Israel. Uh, it was in must have been the end of 2001, and uh, we were introducing them in Israel and also Thailand to groups that personally we'd been supporting. Uh, my husband John had started a, a small landscaping business, and he's a very good businessman. So we were were quite comfortable at that stage, and we'd taken our family to Israel too. And um, but we came back really um, stirred with the thought that we needed to do more to help the world's needy children and at that stage we were leading a house church which was had all well, between about 50 and 70 people meeting each week on a on a friday evening and wow. um and we were just stirred that there was more that God had in mind. And, and I love the fact that with God, you really, you start a journey, but you really don't know <laughs> uh, what all the stops are along the way yeah, and how he's going way. to lead us. And and so there was just this thought, and I was leading a, a, a women's group, had been doing it for many years. And, and in the group, a couple of Salvation Army ladies were there who had experience with op shops. And um, I just hatched this idea and which I told to John who often I have lots of ideas and he kind of <laughs> pours cold water on some of them <laughs> but this I said I think we should start an op shop that would help us raise funds for extending what we more than we can do as individuals mm-hmm. so he thought that was a good idea and so we gathered our house church around us and we invested our own funds and uh, our own vehicles in in the task we we set up a, a, a charity mm-hmm. which we called neighbors aid community stores after the parable of the good samaritan mm-hmm. as a, a practical answer to the question who is my neighbor and what is my responsibility there and and i guess the samaritan was the most unlikely hero of Jesus' parable because uh, he was uh, regarded as as uh, racially impure, mm-hmm. as as yep. a, a religious heretic. Uh, uh, they were really looked down on. The Jews would walk an extra four kilometers just to avoid going through Samaria. But you find Jesus going straight there for an encounter with the the woman who became the first evangelist mm-hmm. and 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 saw revival uh, spread through Samaria. So we were kind of the most unlikely people. We'd never 
done anything in retail before. Uh, we'd, we'd never had an, uh, an interest in op shops and we had no background in development. So, But we just felt that God was calling us and, and a lot of people said, no one will help you, they won't volunteer, you're up against the big guys, you won't raise any money. At the end of the first year, you'll be lucky to break even, uh, no one will donate anything. But within that first year, we gave $80,000 away wow. and we'd outgrown the first store. And uh, again, the rest is history. We've now got six stores in Australia and one in Fiji, and they raise about 87% of the work that we do throughout the developing world. But again, we didn't think beyond the first store and the small group of volunteers. Um, we went through uh, op shop boot camp, uh, mm. but God took us on a journey and, yeah. and uh, we were supporting a group in Thailand and, and uh, several in Israel. But in 2005, there was this next signpost, if you like. There's a Hebrew word called Mazaboth, which is means a standing stone. And when the patriarchs are traveling through Israel, they, um, uh, they, they keep erecting uh, Mazaboth, standing stones, and they return to them because they're special places where God spoke mm-hmm. and changed the course of their lives. And, and in 2005, there was another moment for us like that when people in Africa, pastors in Africa, um, began to make contact, particularly Kenya in Malawi asking for some of my teaching material and and I've always felt that in line with the ancient Jewish thought that if you've been fortunate enough to study uh, that you then have a a responsibility to share it wherever so Mm -hmm. my books and and my speaking has always gone back into ministry and and we've been able to do that because we had our own business so we were, were free so I sent teaching material and then they were very cheeky and said we would you come and mm. so John and I collided with Africa, if you like, um, when Jacob was uh, head, was running away from his brother Esau. In the Hebrew, it talks about the fact that on Bethel, he collided with God and, and with his purposes. And, and John and I collided with Africa <laughs> and its poverty and uh, just the, the extreme needs uh, because it was certainly something that we weren't searching for mm-hmm. or thinking about. And God just caused the collision, I guess, and and we came back absolutely challenged by the poverty that we saw, particularly Mm -hmm. with the children. Uh, We came back really feeling that that was the next stage of development for Neighbours Aid, that Africa was part of the answer to who is our neighbour. And our board members, who do it rightly so, as good boards should, were very cautious. Mm. (laughs) But we were so sure that it was right that we would have left them with Neighbours Aid and started again just because we knew that God had spoken. But he also spoke to them and, and uh, before long we had opened our first school in Malawi, oh, in wow. one of the poorest areas. It's one of the poorest countries in the world. This is one of the poorest areas. And, and since then we've now got two primary schools and a high school and a medical clinic there oh, wow. and, and farming. Mm-hmm. But the same thing happened in Kenya a couple of years later and we now have a, a, a good a school there and, and we've got some of our graduates from our children's home have now graduated university and are coming back to our school there as teachers. Oh, wow. So God enlarged the place of our tent Yet yeah. again, and uh, you, you, you and just have to watch out, Jesma. God just keeps uh, <laughs> tugging your heart in different directions. Next thing you know, you're going to be helping people all over the world. 
Well, we didn't, and that was the amazing thing. We were just taking small steps, yeah. uh, but we had no – it's not like we heard a, a booming voice from heaven saying, now if you do this, this is what's going to happen. <laughs> we're quite practical people, mm-hmm. and John particularly, and um, it was God who connected us and uh, and opened the doors. And, and then this, um, because of John's background in India, I did always have a thought that I'd like to have done something in Calcutta, building on the work of William Carey. Now, now you're going to tell me you're going to go to another country? Well, we did. We <laughs> indeed we. And again, Israel was always the thread because yeah. in Malawi, our director there has a heart for Israel, and the same thing happened. We were at a conference in Prague, and we met an Indian leader who was also involved in Israel, mm-hmm. and, uh, and we started a connection there, which led to uh, the fully funding of, of – and the African projects are all fully funded by Neighbours Aid, and, and then we, we started literacy programs and tailoring schools and now a nursing college for oh, wow. poor village girls to train as midwives. It just doesn't end. And then we went to Calcutta, and uh, and again, uh, this is really close to my heart also in that we've started a couple of schools. And again, we always work with Indigenous uh, leaders. Mm-hmm. We don't believe that um, we should go in as Westerners. We don't have an understanding of the culture and the language or the networking. So we always empower local leaders, trusting that the work will grow and we can do ourselves out of a job and start again. So in Calcutta, we connected with, again with a couple of amazing um, Indian folk and, and they have a team of young people who go into the slums and establish relationships. And then with the invitation from the leaders in the slum community, they establish small activity centres and, and start to to teach the children and prepare them to go into mainstream Indian schools. Wow. So, so that was uh, one of our last projects as well. And, and again, it's just how God has just connected us and yeah. opened doors for us in ways that we couldn't have ever imagined. But when I go back to our time in Starlight Valley, back in uh, the calm, we, yeah. were, we had no electricity. Um, we were carrying water in buckets. Mm. Uh, if the creeks came up, we had to wade through the streams with our kids to, to get home with mm. our groceries. Uh, when the bridges washed away and it was some years later when I was trudging through some um, areas in Kenya visiting some folk in a, a rural slum and, and getting covered in mud and so on and our, our Kenyan leader said Jessmer you never ever complain no matter where I take you and my mind went back to the fact that well my husband took me <laughs> to places <laughs> like this when, when I was very young and, and it was really like an apprenticeship yet had no idea <laughs> that wow. we'd be doing the same thing in Africa and and in India all these years later. So I just see God's hand on the circumstances that he weaves into all of our lives and and we don't always understand at the time, Mm. but um, he he just gives the the opportunities if we open our eyes and and just sort of take the first small step. Yeah. Well, Jesma, I'm getting tired just hearing about all these things. I mean, you're (laughs) exhausting me. I, I don't know how you are able to keep up with all these wonderful ministries that you're involved in, but we are very thankful that you do. Well, I think it's people. It's people that God connects us with that uh, that are the people on the ground and 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 God Himself. It, it's not us. It's it's all Him and His pattern for our lives. And it sounds like it's all about following the Lord's leading, His prompting. Yeah, one step yeah. at a time. Absolutely, that's it. Jesma O'Hara, thank you so much for sharing your story with us today. It's been a pleasure. Really lovely to meet you, Eric. Thank you for inviting me. 
Wow, what an amazing story of someone faithfully following the Lord's leading one step at a time and having tremendous results. As we heard, Jesmo and her husband John have had an incredible expanding ministry that's touching people's lives all over the world. As Eric mentioned, I was starting to get a bit overwhelmed by how many different locations and types of ministries they're involved in. Absolutely incredible. As the Bible says, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And the Lord has been trusting Jesma and John with an ever-increasing amount of ministry work. That is staggering when you stop to think about it. To find out more about their ministry, their website is neighboursaid.org. That's neighboursaid.org. Well, thanks for joining us for Jesma's inspiring story. I'm Jimmy Colfax, encouraging you to share your story with someone today. Next time on The Story. Part of the rescue process, it's not always part, but often we'll get to that point where the child trusts what we're saying is real and uh, we'll offer them an escape and they'll say, yes, I want out. And then they'll finish with, but first I need to get my parents' permission. So then we have to track down where the family is and tell them that we can get their child back to school and give them a better education and find them a job. Tony Kerwin is the founder of Destiny Rescue, a ministry whose main focus is rescuing children out of the sex trade in Thailand and other countries. Tony will share the story behind Destiny Rescue next time. The Story. Just another way vision is connecting faith to life. 